Hey, it's Chris here, interrupting our regularly scheduled podcast to invite you to our upcoming webinar, which takes place on March 6th. The topic is how carriers are leveraging large language models and automation to drive better decisions. Our panelists are Alex Taylor, Global Head of Emerging Technology at QBE Ventures and QBE Insurance, Arthur Borden, Vice President and Head of Digital Business Systems and Architecture at Everest Insurance, and Indico's own Tom Wilde. Go to indicodata.ai to register. And for those who can't make it, or if you're listening to this after the live webinar concludes, the recording will be available on our site. And now back to your regularly scheduled podcast. Welcome to Unstructured Unlocked. A podcast where listeners discover how enterprise leaders are confidently automating document intake and accelerating their workflows to increase capacity and drive top-line revenue. I'm co-host Michelle Govea. And I'm co-host Chris Wells. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Unstructured Unlocked. I'm your co-host Chris Wells. I'm co-host Michelle Govea. And today we're joined by Charles Morris, who is Chief Data Scientist for Financial Services at Microsoft. Charles, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Chris. Hey, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Of course. Us we're too. Excited. Yeah. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Um, why don't you uh, start off by telling us who you are, uh, what you do, what you're excited about? Yeah. So as you noticed, uh, my title is Chief Data Scientist for Financial Services. But what does that actually mean? And so essentially, it means that in Microsoft, we have sort of we focus an entire operating unit on our top financial services customers. And so within that group of customers, um, I, I kind of see overall our all-up AI strategy and see um, sort of these high-tier collaborations that we do with customers when there's something AI going on. I'm often involved in helping figure out what the strategy is, what we're going to build, um, what are new market-making opportunities, and then how do we actually translate that uh, to you know exactly what we're going to build. And so I've been involved in some major collaborations in the Gen AI space, and I have a pretty wide purview of kind of what's going on in the industry, which places are moving fast, which places are moving slow, uh, why that is. And it's just a really exciting time to kind of be at the epicenter of the financial services and Gen AI universe. Yeah, it's uh, it's like the Cambrian explosion for AI right now. 100%. Uh, that sounds like a really big job. What's easy about it and what's hard about it? So what's easy about it is I love seeing all the work that's happening right now. Um, and so it's very easy for me to keep abreast of like what's reality versus what's hype because I can see what people are doing and what's working and what's not working. And, you know, kind of collaborating with our engineering and research organizations, our customers engineering and research organizations, and really going to market jointly. That's the best part of my job is that sort of, like I said, being at the epicenter, I, I kind of actually know what's real and what's not. And so the challenge, though, is we're in financial services um, and we have a lot of high risk applications. Uh, customers are very careful, deservedly so. And so, you know, kind of identifying like what are these risks? How do we mitigate them? Which projects are the ones we want to take on? That can be quite a painful process for organizations. Uh, so for me, you know, it ends up being having the same conversation about we don't train on your data, right? Your data is inside of your tenant <laughs> about 10,000 times a year. Um, but it's important. And, and we've gotten to that point. And this is what's exciting, right? About the hard part is getting better. Um, we've gotten to that point where most financial services, or services organizations 
understand that these models can be used safely, responsible for high sensitivity use cases with PII data and all these things. There is a way to do it. And so 2023, we sort of went from let's figure out, get comfortable, tinker a little bit. In 2024, I think we're going to see a lot of people start coming to market with actual solutions that are transforming their business. Okay, so I'm making a mental, mental note to come back to that question of what's real versus hype. Yeah, uh, I don't absolutely. Want to that out. Uh, we're going to talk about Gen AI, but before we do so, from your point of view, what's the recent history of artificial intelligence in the enterprise up until last yeah. year? So, and, and honestly, a lot of it hasn't changed, which is the good news. Like a lot of the stuff that we have been doing, we should still be doing. And what we call traditional AI is still incredibly useful, right? So these sort of classification models, uh, these forecasting and regression models, we still need all of that, right? Because generative AI models aren't good at those things, right? And so where we're really seeing is like that organizations that have a foundation in that, they're sort of a double-edged sword of it. And so one is that it's hard for them to grasp the new set of thinking that Gen AI requires, right? But on the other hand, if you think of Gen AI as sort of this connective tissue of a lot of different technologies, it actually makes a lot of your traditional AI more useful because you can kind of string it together through a co-pilot and have that human in the loop that was missing. Um, and because we can get into this a little bit more, but I think the biggest mistake when you transition from traditional AI to Gen AI is traditionally we thought of AI as an automation as the end goal. And in generative AI, we're really thinking more of AI's assistive technology. And that's why we've attached to this co-pilot nomenclature, right? Is like the human is driving, right? And so that transition of mindset of like fuzzy thinking versus rigid rules, you know, risk evaluations on kind of softer metrics versus harder metrics, those transitions are really challenging for customers. Um, but we're going to have to get there because the reality of this wave of technology is it's going to be a bit fuzzier in its logic. And so that's a challenge people are trying to overcome. Charles, you just said something uh, that I found really interesting, too. And, and we've, we've talked about it in uh, through through different questions and conversations. Is this, um, you know, that sense of historically people have thought about it as an automation solution. And now the, the mind shift is to um, a, 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 a assistive, you know, uh, technology uh, where so historically it's been AI is bad because it will automate me out of my job and I don't want that. So I don't want to have that ability. And now it's, I can't get it fast enough because I want it to enhance my day to day. So um, I just think it's interesting that you have to reconcile yeah. those, those two things when um, as part of today's conversation. Yeah, I mean, they, that is probably the biggest sticking point from like a mental mentality perspective is if you think about it on a zero to one spectrum where zero is just like a person left to their own devices, no AI involved. And one is like a fully autonomous agent that can just do everything. I'm seeing a lot of customers who are hitting snags are over indexing on trying to get close to one. And, and that's a big challenge. You have to start kind of a human, more human driving, right? And as you trust the technology more, you might find certain tasks that the AI is more capable of doing more of, and you're more comfortable delegating, right? But that that piece there of like, um, you know, don't over-index on automation 
Um, that's really critical in this wave of technology. Yeah, I've had this conversation with clients over and over again, where it's like, we need 150 key pieces of information and it has to be straight through process. And then I share with them the hard reality of combinatorics um, and how impossible that is. Are you seeing Gen AI as helping or hurting sort of those traditional hurdles uh, to getting you know ML-based automation in place? In aggregate, I think it for sure helps, okay. right? In that, like that, that loop of human in the loop for the exceptions, right? Right. Uh, like, what are those exceptions? And so, Gen AI is really good at a couple things. It's it's really good at helping people manage their context, right? Like, help me keep everything together. There's all these moving pieces. Gen AI can help me keep all these pieces in the context I'm working in. It's really good at cutting through noise, and that there's all this information and help me kind of progressively discover. The information rather than just show it to me all up front or hide it away and I have to find it myself. And then the third one, which is most rele relevant to what you're saying, is this blind spot monitoring of Gen AI, right? Yeah. Gen AI's ability to kind of look over your work and say, hey, I think this might be an issue. And so where you might want to do straight through processing, maybe you can do that in 90% of cases, right? You can do straight through processing because it's low risk, you're very confident in the scores. The, um, the false positives are not that damaging if you have them with a low mm -hmm. enough rate. And so Gen AI can kind of come in for that extra 10% and they can say, here's what we've seen so far. Like, here's all the things you need to check. Here's where you can check the rules, right? Do that kind of semantic search against like the rule book and, and kind of come up with that first draft of like, here's all the things you need to check. And, and that's where we're really learning what parts of cognition are actually easy for humans and what parts are actually hard. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's come back to that topic as well. Um, let's zoom out a little bit from yeah. the 30,000 foot viewpoint. What's the sort of landscape of AI period and then gen AI in particular? I, so going back to that comment I made about traditionally thought of AI as automation, that kind of also meant it lived in the background. Right. In that, like when you built a machine learning model, it was really good. It wasn't so obvious to people that there was a really good machine learning model in the background. And so it kind of was like, oh, yeah, the technical teams, the engineers, they care about that. But I'm, I'm in the business and I don't care about that. And Gen AI has flipped that where because it's an assistive technology and it's helping you in the flow of your work, all of a sudden people who would have relegated that to the domain of technology are now thinking, how do I actively incorporate this into my workflow? And so it's changed the priority of AI projects quite a lot, right? I've had more conversations with CEOs in the last year than I've had in the rest of my career, right? Um, because this idea of it's front and center now, and there's actually trade-offs that a user has to decide, how do I manage the trade-offs? Yep. Okay, that was the zoom out. Now let's zoom way in. You're talking about this co-pilot framework and having the model sort of oversee the work in nuts and bolts terms what's hard about implementing that for organizations i think it's a new way of managing technology and managing risk and so again going back to that idea of like the logic of is this a good or bad answer is a little bit fuzzier right because if i ask a person to help me do something 
right? They could come back with something and one person could think it's a good result and helpful. And another person could think it's not helpful. And yeah. so with AI, we have similar trade-offs of like, maybe I prefer more information up front uh, and maybe somebody else prefers less information up front and wants to be able to dive in selectively and do progressive discovery. That is not something you can just universally design. And so then the other question is, when you're having AI participate in this process, um, what are the risk controls, right? How do you make sure the person's driving and it's not just automation with the human rubber stamp at the end, but the human's actually driving the car, right? That is where the biggest challenges are. And it requires slightly nuanced new ways of thinking about how we evaluate risk. Um, because the models for the foreseeable future are going to be black boxes. Yeah. And so we have to find new ways of evaluating risk if, if we want to incorporate this into our business. Yeah. How is that, from your experience and the clients that you worked with, what's the sort of best practice that's emerging in terms of governance, audit, all those sorts of things for these black boxes? So the biggest thing is at this point where Gen AI is, you really don't want to use it for judgment making or decision making, okay. right? You want to use it as an assistive technology. Help me make a decision, like help me weigh the evidence, like compare evidence and, and things like that, right? Help me make my decision, but don't make it. Don't suggest what the answer is. Just say, you know, the pros are this, the cons are this. And, and so that that part is really critically important that we don't try to use it to make decisions for us. Yeah. Putting that human being at the center, I'm going to say this a million times today, putting the human being at, at the center in the driver's seat is really critical because then when you have that, go back to the governance question, what you can do is you can say, well, here's the instructions I gave to the model. Here's all the information with citations that I gave it as context. Here's how I surfaced it to a user and then they made a decision and so regulator is going to look at that and if it's just that like you know basically it's automated fill in and then you pushed a button a human pushed a button that's going to be harder to justify than a solution that has a human as the active participant and the, the human's actually saying okay now i want to do this tell me more about this and they're really making that decision and they're driving it and with that citation, with that kind of chain of evidence, if you will, easier to justify. And, and let's be honest, we're, we haven't solved it yet. Like that's an ongoing negotiation between the business world and regulators and society. But that's sort of the direction I think we're headed. These models I, are... I think, uh, yeah, go ahead. No, I, was just, I, I think that's a really important point. Um, and, and bringing on the lens of the insurance industry and Charles, what you said of people want to go from, you know, zero to one right off the bat. But what you just described is really sitting in the middle of before we can get to fully automated, we need to, these models need to be trained. There needs to be a person in there asking all the right questions, making sure that the, the data that's being used to make the decision is, is being read in the right context and um, situations. And, you know, Chris and I talk about this every episode and we we promised that we'll put something together on like the regulatory landscape and governance in terms of of ai but um like i what what you said just like really resonated with me and i think any of you know anyone in the insurance industry that that's listening should really take what you just said to heart of it 
it needs to be someone still driving the process. The underwriters still need to be asking the right next question, going back out to get the right next set of information. Um, I think that's really key to have any type of success with a pilot or operationalizing of, of an AI solution in-house. Well, and let me up the ante a little bit, right? Okay, it may be that automating existing, pro- existing processes isn't even the goal. And so Gen AI is so transformational of a technology that really will, we can reinvent a lot of processes. And I think about this as reinventing the middle. If I think about what is the outcome I need to accomplish and what are the assets and resources available to me to accomplish that, I actually with Gen AI have new lines I can draw that weren't possible before. And so focusing on automating existing processes is not always the right solution. It may be that a full assistive approach from end to end in a different way is actually more faster, more effective, safer, lower risk. And so that's where, you know, I really am trying to challenge my customers, sort of this idea of think big, start small, and don't over-index on what you already have. Really focus on outcomes and what resources are available to drive those outcomes. And then we can get some fun design thinking going on and and, and we've actually done this. We've transformed some really important processes already of how Gen AI can help us do them totally differently. I'll, I will see that hot take and raise you that it <laughs> is almost never the right thing to do to automate the existing <laughs> process. But especially in these verticals, there tends to be, and I'm glad you're having some success, there tends to be an aversion to process redesign because I don't know if it's mm. cargo cult thinking or just uh the conservative nature of these uh verticals it's hard to get people to really take a deep look at what they're doing well let, let me take a stab at, at answering that from the insurance side and then yeah. charles welcome your thoughts on on overlaying it with everything but i think when you when you when you are going through those exercises a lot of the components that fit into that are well, if we want to do it this way, then the system breaks down or the system can't do that. And so the, a, a lot of times these large carriers with these legacy systems or even transformed, quote unquote, core, new core systems have all of this baggage that comes along with them that make it nearly impossible for them to change the process without completely changing some of their infrastructure. So that that I think is some of the resistance. Um, and you some in some cases, these systems are so... Uh, they've been around for so long and have so much data and feed so many downstream systems that you don't even know all the places that changing one thing will break something down the line. Yeah, I see. I see you laughing. I know this from like my experience at one of the carriers I worked at, just like working in green screens. Oh, we want to change this thing. It's going to feed 30 different systems that we don't even know. And we have no idea what will break down the line. So I think that's a little bit of the resistance of like, you know, process engineering and changing what's worked for, for and, I mean, and, and the reality is like you know gen ai is not going to just uni- universally solve all these modernization and legacy problems but it certainly does open the aperture of what we can do right it, we have a wider plane of things we can do and and chris i actually i actually think before a lot of companies were justified and not wanting to inspect those processes too hard because the return on doing so wasn't big enough, but I think with Gen AI, you know, it's a big enough way, big enough paradigm shift, so to speak, that now the sort of the the risk of not doing it is sort of starting to eclipse the risk of doing it wrong. 
Um, particularly if you think about the example of a lot of insurers, large insurers, mm-hmm. right? They take your money every single month, right? And they know your bank account and they can take it out of your bank account every single month. But then when you file a claim, you have to fill out all this paperwork so they can cut you a physical check to bring to a bank. And so as a user, I'm like, you're, you're taking money out of my bank account, right? Why can't you put it in in the same process? And they don't understand that's because there's all these hundreds of complex systems behind the scenes that don't communicate. But ultimately, as new co- co- kind of customers come online, that's going to be unacceptable. It's an unacceptable experience. And I'm going to choose the insurance company that can do those things. Yeah. And so that's where I think sort of the enough has changed that now sort of the risk of staying the same is greater than the risk of changing. I like that framing. We, we've uh, <laughs> we just we passed an inflection point last year. I think yeah. That's what you're telling me. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Um, all right. Two more questions and I'm going to pass the baton to Michelle to really dig deep uh, into the insurance impact <laughs> of all these things. Um, the models making the headlines are the really big ones. GPT-4, the turbo variant, 3.5, Claude, um, you know, you name it, the big guys. But those big guys all have to live behind someone else's firewall. AWS, Microsoft, for example, in Azure. Um, and as you mentioned, they are black boxes. But there's this whole zoology of small models, the 7 billion, 13 billion parameter models that with a little uh, spit and elbow grease, you can get running on your own, you know, even a, a really souped up uh, server card in your own firewall, right? What do you see as the future? Are we going to end up in a point where it's just all big models? They're totally black boxes. You can never see behind the curtain. Or is there going to be a place for those small models? And I'm really interested in the timeline. Yeah, um, timeline might be tough. So there's actually two yeah. things in that question that I want to unpack. Um, yeah, please. The first is that I just want to clarify, like the way we built the Azure OpenAI service, right? And, and the way we're expanding more and more models as a service, like we already have MetaLama 2 available as a Pago model as a service. That's all happening in the customer's Azure tenant. So it's inside of their firewall, right? And so like, you know, that distinction, that was a big part of 2023 was getting customers to understand that we've built this to be FedRAMP high secure, SOC 1, 2, 3, HIPAA certified, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and so that it's running in your tenant and your data is safe and we never use it. We never look at it. It's private to you, right? So even on these large model infrastructures, um, you can do that like inside of your firewall, like inside of your Azure tenant. And so that's a really important thing for people to understand because then it opens up kind of going to your next question is like, use the right model for the job. And so our perspective is that there will be a diverse ecosystem of models, right? And so sort of the flagship foundation models um, are, are going to be the most useful for the widest range of scenarios. Um, but we're also doing a lot of work in that small language model space, the SLMs. So people may not be familiar. Uh, we Microsoft Research, we released a model called Phi2. And so this is a 3 billion parameter model. We open sourced it under an MIT license. Um, and it competes with models that are 10, 20, 30 times its size. And, and so we definitely see that the small language models are going to be used in specific areas to accomplish specific high volume tasks. 
Um, but where we are now, I think the safe thing to say is use the best model available to you. And that will give you the fastest development time. And so generally that tends to be either use GPT-3.5 Turbo uh, if you need something very fast or use GPT-4 if you need something powerful. And then as you're building stuff, you can get to market really quickly. And then these opportunities to kind of like optimize with either doing, you know, um, doing some kind of fine tuning or using a small language model or using a traditional classifier or something like that. They become optimization steps. Right. But you got to keep in mind that that's not costless to do in terms of like you need to curate a data set. You need to evaluate results. You need to make sure it's safe. And so you're putting on this whole operational burden that really slows down your time to market. And so that's where, again, it's not say don't do it. I say don't start with it. To me, it's an optimization step at this point that could change in the next two years. Like these SLMs could explode in capability. I mean, we're putting a ton of research behind it. Um, but ultimately, we're just trying to make sure everybody has access to as many models as possible so they can make those decisions themselves. Um, so, but the other thing is like you need the large language models to train the small language models. You do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's just too hard to get like quality data um, without sort of using a large language model to help you generate it. Yeah. I'm really glad you touched on that point because I've seen a lot of, um, seen a lot of organizations start to forget the best practices for deciding which model to use. And I think there's been a lot of vibe checking going on. I was like, look, it responds great to this prompt. And I didn't try it on any other pieces of text and it's fine. Yeah. Um, so it, it's comforting to hear that the data science types of the world have a uh, bright future ahead of them and helping to make these decisions. Yeah. And, and the one last note I'll make on that is I think people give up too quickly on using the sort of powerful foundation models. They kind of manually kind of craft some prompts and then they run into some issues and then they give up. Um, but what we're seeing is that these models have so much more juice in them than we've been able to get out of them. And so we released a study on a um, thing called MedPrompt. And so just with advanced prompting strategies, we set a new state of the art on the medical domain with base GPT-4. And so it beat medical specific, you know, MedPalm 2 uh, was a medical specific model Google built. It outperformed that. It built fine, beat fine-tuned variants. And so I think people do get to that wall and rather than continue to pursue and try new techniques within the base models with better prompting, better rag, all these technical tips and tricks, they sort of say, oh, I must need to fine tune now. And I, I find that that in practice just doesn't bear out. Um, with the cost, a lot of customers pursued that route and then they came back and said, actually it didn't work as well as we thought. And now we're gonna resume. And so I wish people would just kind of skip that step, but we're at the phase where people are gonna need to like learn their own lessons. Yeah. <laughs> it, thank you for validating my intuition that the near-term future is prompt engineering over fine tuning. Uh, last question, and then I'm I'm done. I'll give it to Michelle. Uh, coming back to what we started with, talk to me about what's real and what's hype right now. And uh, let's start with the hype so we can leave people with what's real. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because a lot of the hype is real in one sense and, and fake in another. And so it's real in the sense that I think what's happening is people are conflating what's real in the research domain with what's real in the applied domain. And so if you think about this from like multimodal models, especially, this is a great example, right? 
Um, we're making great strides in multimodal in, in terms of how you know useful these are and what these models do. But there's all these challenges today that have not yet been solved around hallucinations being much harder to deal with in a multimodal space. You know, the cost may be less advantageous, right? Because there's sort of two approaches to multimodal. There's one multimodal model, right? Or there's sort of string different mode models together through outputs. And so for today, for example, like I would recommend if you have documents, like you could use GPT-4V to read a document and kind of interpolate over it. You can, but what's probably more effective is to use like Azure Document Intelligence pull all of that annotated metadata out, spit it out as a markdown file, and then feed that text, that structured, well-designed you know, text into GPT-4. Um, that tends to be more effective than just trying to hope that the model itself is going to sort out all these intricacies. We may GPT, get to... Not GPT-4, yeah, GPT-4V is a bad OCR engine. <laughs> it's it, Yeah, and it's, it's getting better, but it's just not... As as like cost efficient or performant as a as a document intelligence engine, and so you know we'll get there. But that's where again it's kind of hype in the sense that I wouldn't advise you go use GPT four V to assess auto damage, for example, because how do you deal with hallucinations, right? But that is something people should be researching because it could be a year or two years out that we solved a lot of these problems, and that is a valid solution. And so that conflation of like research and applied, I think that's where a lot of the confusion is coming from. And then of course, there's just a lot of people saying a lot of silly things. Like right now we are in an evaluation crisis um, in, in the AI realm where everybody's focused on benchmarks and, and benchmarks only tell you so much. There's a lot of models that perform well on benchmarks and then you actually try to use them and they're totally unusable. Right. And because they just don't follow instructions well, they do all this weird stuff where they repeat themselves. Um, and so that, I think, is a big part of the hype cycle is like every day you're seeing a post like the GPT-4 killer is here. And then, you know, it's not. Right. Um, and so I think that is where we need new forms of evaluation. Um, and, and the best form of evaluation is is getting a product to market. Interesting. All right. Proofs in the pudding. So yeah. All right. Great lead in. What's real? What's actually going to market? So what's real right now is um, especially platform companies. So there's a lot happening inside of core businesses, right? In terms of like, you know, internal automation. But if you're if your primary revenue comes from directly servicing customers, you're probably focused on a lot of internal improvements that are not visible to anybody. There's a lot of value there. There's a lot of real value there. And one public example of this would be um, Ally Bank, right? Uh, has just gone live with a call center solution. And so after every call, right, they, um, you know, they basically summarize the call that the agent was just on and they capture all this data. And then they, they show it to the agent and they say, hey, was this right? Like, do you need to modify anything? And so the agent is still owns and is responsible for that note summarization. But instead of that taking like several minutes after every call, it, it, it's much faster. And so that's internally focused. But where a lot of the cool innovation that you're going to start seeing this year is platform companies. So think about like your Moody's, your fact sets, your Black Rocks, right? They're, they're trying to monetize their data assets, their capabilities, their engines, 
right? Yeah. You think about insurance ISVs, right? I mentioned those three because they're all publicly in market with a solution in at least one, one area. Um, that is really where a ton of the like kind of visible innovation is going to happen is make APIs more useful, uh, make the ecosystem feel smaller and more navigable, you know, make it like less siloed. Um, and Gen AI is going to play a huge role in sort of transforming how quickly people who are using platforms like that um, can get their work done. I think that's, yeah. um, oh, go ahead, Chris. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it's interesting. You said earlier that it shouldn't be used for decisioning. And then you talked about the real use cases having nothing to do with decisioning. And I, I just wanted to point that out as to reinforce yeah. <laughs> that point. Yeah. Go ahead, Michelle. No, uh, that was uh, sort of where I was, where I was going to take a question of Charles, what I, what I think is, is interesting or, or some of the conversations that I've heard, I agree with you completely, by the way, that like it, at least the insurance carriers that I've talked to, a lot of what they're looking to use Gen AI, Gen AI solutions and capabilities for is internal inside the four walls, right? Helping, helping to streamline, you know, underwriting claims, everything that moves, um, oh. you know, things through through the organization. However, I think that underneath all that, there is this desire to get to a decision making use case or a like front end. Gen AI use case because ultimately at the end of the day, what these carriers want to do is have their end customer, which you you can define customer as agent or insurer depending on on your line of business and and distribution strategy. But if we go with the end insured as the customer in this example, right, the where the insurance carriers want to move the needle is with their experience, right? They want them to have a positive experience. They want their customer to understand that they are innovative, that they are on the forefront of, of using technology. And so how do you, like, what's your advice to help them reconcile that of like, you you can't just go out there and have it be the only interface you have going on with, with a real human being. Yeah, right. Um, and so at Microsoft, we talk a lot about horizons, right? And so we think mm -hmm. about horizon one, which is like what the foundational stuff today, horizon two, which is sort of the next wave innovation, horizon three being that transformational, like let's make this a whole, new thing, new market making opportunities, et cetera, that are gonna take longer to do. And so I think like thinking through that framework, um, Horizon One is a lot of those internal things because with Copilots, what you really wanna do is like think about, you wanna just put any person in the pilot seat of a plane, just because there's all these amazing automation technologies, right? You still want a qualified professional sitting in that seat. And so I think even when we're talking about exposing it to end users, there's tiers of that, right? So exposing it to just a random person who just has an insurance policy is going to be higher risk than like if you have a trusted agent network and you can say, hey, take this with a grain of salt, like, you know, use it like this, et cetera. And that's going to be more risk than if you have first party agents, right, where you can very controlly, you know, very tightly control the rollout and things like that. And so I think that waves and, and thinking about this, like in terms of concentric circles of, you know, who's the next wave of adopters, um, that I think is where you want to think about that strategy and all the lessons you learn inside of the innermost circle apply to the outer, that every layer you go out, there's more things you need to do right and more risks you need to manage. And so if you think about kind of as you mature, being able to expand that scope of who, who you're putting a co-pilot into the hands of and how capable is that that co-pilot 
And so end users, you might give them a co-pilot technology that lets you them navigate your website or ask questions about you know, their coverages or something very discreet. And that's not really very high risk, right? Because you're saying, hey, co-pilot, go look up in the API, you know, how much coverage they have, right? That's that simple. But hey, help me decide which insurance policy to choose and all that. You start to get into more regulatory, you know, risky areas, more risk mitigation areas. And I think we will get there. But um, I think starting there is, is challenging. Um, interesting use of words there. Um, how how do you think, so uh, over the past few years, I'd say that in, in the insurance industry, the appetite to work with startups uh, has, has increased, right? It's not all mm-hmm. meant to be completely disrupt the whole industry. It's really, how do we partner to move forward our goals and you know strategic objectives? Um, with with the overlay of, of Gen AI, um, how do you, like what's some advice that you would give to insurance carriers um, to, to partner with InsurTechs? Like what's, what are the things that they should be thinking about when they're looking to collaborate um, with companies that are coming in uh, with some of these capabilities and saying, we, we've built this, let us help you get there. Yeah, and I think you know this is this is something that's obviously being worked out, and I think we'll figure out exactly where it's going. But if I were to kind of give my like as of today kind of read on the situation, it's I think companies are starting to become more disciplined in what is their value add versus what are the things they have to do to enable that value add, and going from an, a mindset of like I have to build every single component of this solution to actually, if I offload this component, it saves me a lot of time, money, energy, they do it better. I get faster feature updates because it's not just like, you know, three engineers internally that that maintain this thing. It's a company that makes money off of it. And I think having that strategic view of like, what part of the business are you actually trying to service your customers with? Because it's probably not a lot of the back office stuff. It's probably not a lot of the middle office stuff. Right, it's probably not the payments or the fraud ecosystem, right? So those are places where insure tech partners can come in and kind of universally solve those general problems, those generalized problems, much more effectively. And so I think if a customer wants to think about like having their platform be sort of the hub and have these insure techs kind of integrate in, um, I, I think that's going to be really where the industry goes is sort of outsourcing the general purpose problems to insure techs mm-hmm. and then really focusing on like where we value differentiated. And that's gonna be different from insurer insure to insure. Going back to the customer interaction risk that you were talking about. So like, I would be super comfortable having Amazon Prime have a bot that helps me shop because it's so <laughs> easy to return things, right? It's yeah. not easy to return an insurance policy. So I I just wonder if if that need to mitigate the risk is going to in significant ways change the way that the business is actually done in order to mitigate the risk rather than worry about solving it as a technical problem. And that's where we we're coming back to that statement we made earlier about like reinventing the process itself, right? Um and and it may be that there's sort of like you know what, if we do it X way, there's not that much risk. Like the relative risk is like worse than, I mean, it's better than the missed revenue opportunities or whatever it is. Um, and so 
that's a business decision, but it comes back to not over indexing on what you have today. And so I, I do think like whenever you're hitting a direct consumer, like a person who's not a professional and they're just engaging with you as a customer, um, you, you need to be like so much more diligent with what you're what you're doing for them and how narrow the scope of the projects you're exposing to them are. Um, so I, I just like I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying you, you, you have like an extra set of like safety considerations that you really want to consider before going that route. Yeah, that makes sense. I want to bring it back to just things that that you're seeing uh, in your interactions with with your clients. Um, but from your perspective, based on the conversations you're having, what are the the current trends uh, in automation in insurance that you, that you're seeing, and kind of where in the workflow are they falling? Yeah, so I mean, uh, you you all would know this even better than I do, right? It's it's there's there's so many forms, there's so many like legal processes and checks and compliance things um, that are just ripe for either automation or AI assistive technologies, right? Copilots to help make those processes faster, right? And so you think about like the idea. One very common use case is people are using more and more. Um, sort of generative AI technologies for RFPs, right? And they're taking like an indexed set of all the contracts and all the RFPs they've done in the past and all their internal policies. And they're still having a person put that RFP together, but now they're just getting all the drafts for the questions with the citations and the sources together so much faster. So instead of that taking three months or six months, it's taking like a week to get the first draft out, right? And, and so you can very easily see that same process as applying to you know some of the other checks you run in your business. And then obviously there's a ton going on in the document intelligence space of A, trying to digitize those processes so you don't have the forms in the first place, but then where you do have those forms, you know, get really good kind of document intelligence to be able to extract those things, map them to your systems. Um, Cause that's not value additive for anybody. It's just at the cost of doing business. And so that is where like more automation type things, but generative AI accelerating the validation of those things or, you know, the, hey, by the way, this was missing on this form. So I've, I've pulled the email that you're going to ask the customer to submit this form, right? Like just accelerating that process. Excellent. Um, I think a lot of insurance carriers are excited for, about what you just said, where things are going are gonna to go. Um, I'm going to pull uh, Chris's favorite question here and just just ask you pull out your crystal ball uh, in the next uh, pick whatever time frame you want the next year the next three to five years uh where are we in this you know journey of of gen ai and uh specific in the insurance industry what 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 use cases are we using it for um you know what's kind of become table stakes or the standard that that the industry is using gen ai with that's a good one. So I'm going to think about that a little bit. I think the first thing that kind of comes to mind is this concept of don't make me think. Right? Like as a as a as a consumer, as a purchaser of insurance, as somebody who needs to file a claim, right? Like don't make that super challenging for me. Don't make me repeat myself. Right? So um mm -hmm. another example would be, you know, the idea of like when somebody calls in and they say, "Hey, I just got in an accident, blah 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 blah." Like you, you're at a really vulnerable moment when you've just been in a car accident. And so what could be more frustrating than having to re-explain yourself 
um, 17 times, right, of yeah. the same thing. And, you know, people's memories are kind of hazy. So now maybe there's discrepancies between the first time they told the story and the second time. And that's most of the time that's not fraud, right? It's just like, we're human beings and we remember things differently based on our emotional state and time from the event. And so what if I could just capture that all the first time and I make that a digestible asset and then I can, you know, kind of follow up and ask questions against that. I can extract some of the information from that. I can structure what follow-ups I actually need so that, you know, I only have to ask the customer. I can minimize the number of reach outs I have to a customer Right. So they don't have to be dealing with their insurance company. Right. Insur the best insurance companies should basically be invisible insurance companies. Right. Something happens. Um, and now I'm covered. Right. And assuming my coverage is is correct. Right. But all that bureaucracy and red tape that our consumers have to navigate. I think that's going to be the challenge that we're going to see overcome more and more and more with a lot of this back office, middle office kind of automation. And then going one step further from that, I actually think the competitive dynamic is going to be between incumbents rather than um, kind of in, in, insure techs and things like that, because it really going to it really is going to be like the number two insurer builds a really awesome solution that makes it less painful, and they start siphoning off business from the number one, three, and four insurers, right? And, and so I think that is the competitive pressure is like who provides the best experience. Um, mm -hmm. And obviously, rates are tied to your internal cost structure as well, right? Uh, and so there's all that. And I just think insurance is going to get a lot simpler um, for the end end users of it. That's worth celebrating. <laughs> <laughs> At least I hope so. Maybe that's wishful thinking, but that's where I think it's going to go. But well, I think that's as good a spot as any. Uh, Charles, this has been really, really insightful. Uh, this has been uh, a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Um, so thank you to Charles Morris, Chief Data Scientist for Financial Services at Microsoft for being our guest on the Unstructured Unlocked podcast. Thanks, Charles. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Unstructured Unlocked. You can find all of our episodes wherever you listen to podcasts today. Be sure to write a review if you like what you hear.